men always objectify us. So much so that you've made it the norm as if we're just supposed to say boys will be boys. But when are men going to start acting like men? Oh, really? <laughs> oh, really? So women don't ever objectify men? So we're just going to ignore the fact that in order for me to be considered attractive, I need to be ridiculously in shape and have all the right facial features? You aren't catcalled every time you walk outside. It feels like every corner I turn, there's another man waiting to stare at me or whistle when I pass by. Not to mention how we're over-sexualized on billboards, commercials, and magazines. You want to talk about being over-sexualized? Men that are deemed attractive due to having those mus muscles and facial features are put in magazines and commercials. Commercials with shampoo, as if it's the norm to look like that. Do you even know how difficult it is for a female to get promoted in a male-dominated workplace just because they don't want to risk me having to take maternity leave in the future? Are you serious? Do you even realize how easily women have been able to rise to the ranks of companies in today's society? Feminism has taken over and companies promote and hire women with little to no skill or experience simply because they don't want to seem intolerant or sexist. Are you even listening? You men never listen. You never communicate. You're always on about communication. But whenever I ask, how are you? You're always like, I'm fine. Woman, I'm not a mind reader. It's not that complicated. Stay here, you guys. When I was uh, at uh, University of Birmingham, England for my PhD, uh, there was, I found out about uh, something that had happened there many years before. A man named Walter Hollenweger had been uh, there as the first person to establish what is now called the Chair of Pentecostal Studies at a public university. The Chair of Pentecostal Studies is Hol Walter Hollenweger. And I actually was privileged years before that to uh, listen to him. He came to the, the European Pentecostal Theological Association's annual meeting in Germany. And uh, one of the things that happened there was that he... Uh, reconciled with the European Pentecostals. There had been some kind of a break, and I don't even know what it was about, and I was new to the whole thing, but I just watched them reconcile. And the estrangement and the reconciliation that happened there probably had an effect on my next encounter with him, which was in my master's degree, so before Birmingham, when I was at Fuller Seminary doing a master's in New Testament. He was not theologian in residence, he was there as artist in residence. And for one semester, he put on a number of different skits. This was one of them. So he had uh, pairs of people stand in the Covenant Church where we did our high church worship. We did high church and low church once a week, and I liked the high church better. It was way, way cooler. But um, he had them accuse each other. And we were just shocked, you know, we heard the, especially when we heard the first one, just like you were kind of shocked just now. Whoa. Um, and, and we could tell from the words they were saying that they couldn't hear each other. And they were both sincere and they both felt they were right. Sincere Christians who cannot find a place of agreement about important issues. 
And then they took a deep breath and they looked at each other and they said a creed that was also a little shocking. I am here at the table of the Lord. I am not alone. I am here with my enemy. Hallelujah. Amen. How about that? Thank you. Our sermon today is called The Gospel of the Broken Wall, and it's taken from Ephesians. You got your Bibles out? Bibles, hardcover preferably, because we're going to look at footnotes. Okay, pull your Bibles out. We're in Ephesians. You, you, write, you give a sermon, you do some background, right? You don't just preach off a verse and make things up about it. Hmm. Okay, so look at the first verse of Ephesians. You have a footnote there? Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1. was this letter written, my students, was this letter written to the church in Ephesus? Oh, everybody else is going, what? What? If you look there, you should have a footnote that tells you that not all the manuscripts have the words in Ephesus. In fact, the oldest and best manuscripts do not have it. Here's an example of Codex Sinaiticus, which we have here in the library, in facsimile form. So that's what the page looks like. If you see the Third and fourth columns, there's a little line towards the top. goes across there. Let's have a closer look at that. So the fourth line down is the words to the ones who are, the ones being. And there's, in Sinaiticus, it just says to the ones being. And in the middle of that fourth line, you see a little brown squiggle? So you look over in the margin, there's that little brown squiggle again. That's like a footnote, right, in an ancient Bible, fourth century Bible. And it says, en Ephezo. That's the words in Ephesus. So some later corrector has gone back and put those words in because he knows that it's in most of the copies. So he thinks it should be in this one too. Well, this is the same situation in another very important uh, Greek codex called Codex Vaticanus. And in the very oldest copy of Ephesians in P46, there's not even a correction. The words in Ephesus are just not there. Well, what's going on? Well, what is thought about this letter is that it was not actually sent to Ephesus. It was meant as an encyclical to cycle, like a newsletter, right? To cycle around in a whole area, probably Asia Minor, to a series of churches. And it could be that Ephesus was the first church to receive it. So one of the copies they sent out, or that was made copies of, uh, had the words in Ephesus in it because they wrote it in for themselves and the other didn't, so we have some copies with the address and some without it. Maybe, maybe they were the church that preserved the letter or maybe the most important church. For, for some reason, most copies have the words in Ephesus. Either way, they inserted their name into the copy and other copies were made of that. Another support for the theory that Paul was writing an encyclical is that this letter is his most thoughtful and formal treatise about the church. It doesn't feel like Paul's typical letters where he's all upset and, and it kind of says one thing and another and talks in circles. Um, he's not referring to any details. And we know the church in Ephesus was way messed up because we've read Timothy uh, and in Acts as well, this was a messed up church and there's nothing about messed up in this letter. 
So it looks like he's writing to a more general audience, which means it's one of his two most formal letters that contain his theology in a more thoughtful, careful way. And that matters to us today. The structure of the letter is really simple. There are three chapters of theology and three chapters of perinesis. In the, first, in, the, in the first half, we've got an extended benediction and a prayer that form a framework for powerful theology and celebration. And it has a liturgical character to it. What's perinesis? Come on. You learned this once for an exam. Evan's saying it louder. You don't know? Ah, I heard somebody say, practical exhortation, right? So the second, first half of the letter is theology. Second half of the letter, he teaches how to live based on that theology. And uh, there we have a, a lengthy paranetic section interrupted by a psalm used by Paul to discuss the bestowing of leadership gifts on the church by Jesus. And even though chapter 4 of Ephesians is my favorite book in the whole Bible, I will not talk on it today, but we will look instead at chapter 2. Just a few more background things. This, this letter focuses on the church. You've probably already figured that out. 18 times Paul uses the words for unity and one and unite. 40 times he uses all or every. In this little tiny, little tiny letter, um, he's talking about the one gospel for the one world church. And the idea of fullness uh, is uh, repeatedly there in the letter. We'll actually look at that in uh, one of the verses we'll read. So let's take a brief look at the theology that leads up to our passage for today. In chapter 1, after the address, Paul blesses God, who he says chose us. We can add ourselves in there now, but he meant himself and the Ephesians, or no, not the Ephesians, the people in Asia Minor who he's writing to. He chose us, and mostly he's writing to Gentiles, for adoption through Jesus the Messiah. Now, adoption is not a normal practice so much in Jewish society, but it's very familiar to Gentiles. They did adoption in, in, at all levels of society. And years earlier, Paul had already used the picture of the Gentiles being God's adopted children when he wrote to the Galatians. Uh, and there's some really powerful stuff there about adoption. You should have a look at that if you get a chance. Then in the next sentences in Ephesians now, he, Paul refers to the mystery. Mystery is a big word for Paul. And we, when we see, think mystery, we think of reading mystery novels or, you know, just figuring out a mystery. Well, Paul's mystery has been revealed. He still calls it a mystery because it was a mystery from the beginning of time. But now it's been revealed. Um, when Paul speaks of the mystery, he almost always means that unexpected, surprising plan of God to include those despised Gentiles in the family of God as fellow heirs. Not just you get to live in the basement. No, you're the family of God as Gentiles. Well, how many of you here come from a Jewish background? I've got a few. That's good to know. So we don't find very many Christians from Jewish backgrounds. But with all the rest of you, you don't belong in God's family. 
You were not in it. Your heritage does not come from there. Without God's amazing, mysterious plan from the beginning of time, you are the outsider, the one who was not welcome. You are the despised one. Paul's going to say in one of the verses we read here pretty soon, without God in the world, which just gives us the word atheist, atheoi, without God in the world. The second half of chapter 1 is a prayer. He's setting up to say some very important things in chapter 2. It's a prayer. He prays that their eyes would be opened to this glorious inheritance that they are to receive in Jesus, those Gentiles in Asia Minor, who is, that they are to receive Jesus, who is the head of the church. The church is his body, and the church is the fullness of of him who fills all in all. People that were in my prison epistles class last semester and others of you as well have heard me say, what does that even mean? The church is the fullness of him who fills all in all. I just think Paul couldn't find any more words to describe what it means to be God's people. And he just said that. And, I, and all, commentaries all try to explain it. I read their explanations. I go, no, that isn't it. That isn't, what does he mean? This isn't good enough. He, that's just how, what Paul does. He just waxes eloquent. And we all go, what does that mean? Chapter 2, Paul starts describing how awful these people were before Jesus saved them. He says... Chapter 2, verse 1, you Gentiles were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were dead, dead man walking, right? In which you formerly walked, your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. I'm sorry, I'm reading the wrong. I only had an NASB today, so it's going to be awkward. Uh, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Now, you already know from Sunday school class that the Jews and the Gentiles hated each other. The Jews are the chosen people of God. They saw the Gentiles, and even Gentiles who worshipped Yahweh as proselytes, they saw them as ritually impure and full of sin. They called them dogs. On the other hand, the Gentiles were part of the empire that oppressed the Jews, they were a captive people now in the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire, other empires as well. And, and the Gentiles did terrible things to the Jews, and even to the point of desecrating the temple, outlawing circumcision, outlawing their festivals, treating them terribly, putting huge taxes on them. Now, up in, in verses 1 and 2, Paul's been saying, you all, you Gentiles were dead. And then he switches in verse 3 to we. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and the mind, and we were, by nature, children of wrath, just like everybody else. So the moral bankruptcy of the pagan world was pretty bad, but here he says, also the Jews are children of wrath. And this fits with Paul's understanding elsewhere. Read Romans 1 through 3, for example, that both groups 
have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Both groups are under the power of sin. Both groups equally need God's grace. All humanity is included both in Adam's sin and in Jesus' sacrificial act of righteousness. So now that we all feel awful and condemned, we read verse 4, and maybe you've heard a pastor use this one before, but God. So you're icky, yucky, stinky, sinful people. But God, who was rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. And let's go on, verse 5. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive with the Messiah. You've been saved by grace. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Messiah Jesus. And now he tells us why God did that. So why did God lavish his mercy on sinners? Verse 7, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Why did God lavish his mercy on sinners? So that they, we, could serve as a demonstration of God's grace to all succeeding ages. We, we are God's picture of grace. Here we are. And there's a wonderful quote by F.F. F. Bruce to this effect. This society of pardoned rebels, that's us, is designed by God to be the masterpiece of his goodness. So, and then he finishes uh, through verse 10. It says, once more, you have been saved by grace, through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not because of your works, so nobody gets to boast. We are his workmanship. Not we create our salvation, but we are his workmanship, created for good works, which he prepared ahead of time so we could walk in them. And now we come to our passage for today. There's a therefore there. You should always ask, what is the therefore therefore when you see a therefore? Well, basically, basically what's going on here is that Paul is now saying, because of this revealed mystery of the grace of God, that he would lavish his mercy not only on his own Jewish people, but on these undeserving, dirty, rebellious outsiders the following is true. Therefore, remember that you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by those who are called the circumcision, that circumcision is performed by human hands in the flesh. Remember, you were, back then, you were separate from Messiah. You were excluded from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. You had no hope and you were atheoi, without God in the world. The Gentiles were not part of the covenant promises of God to Israel. And that was made physically visible in circumcision. Now Paul turns this upside down. He dismisses circumcision as oh, made by hand and contrast that with a true circumcision, which is spiritual. And here you pause and you say, well, could the Jews have understood this? What's, 
what does he mean by spiritual circumcision? Was, were they prepared for this? Yeah. Uh, all through the Old Testament, you see God telling his people to circumcise their hearts. That's spiritual circumcision. Don't stiffen your neck anymore. For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality or take a bribe. He executes justice for the outsiders, the orphan and the widow. He shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. So God says to them and to us, show your love for the alien because you used to be aliens yourselves. And if you're from a Gentile background, you come from an alien background. Already, even before God's people had entered the promised land, God was challenging his chosen people to include others, the outsiders, in the blessing. And this sensitivity to God and inclusion of others was called circumcision of the heart or spiritual circumcision. And now Paul, writing this letter, all these years later, after the incarnation has occurred, recognizes that God's including the Gentiles in the family of God is the fulfillment of this word that Moses had given so many years before. Let's go on to verse 13. But now, so he just got done saying, you, you were separate, you were excluded, you were strangers, you had no hope. But now, in Messiah Jesus, you who formerly were far off are now brought near by the blood of Christ. For he, is, he himself is our peace. He made both groups into one. He broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. He abolished in his flesh the enmity. He made the two into one and established peace and, and had reconciled them both in one body to God through the cross by, having put, by it having put to death, ugh, by having, oh, good gracious, I'm lost, by it having put to death the enmity. And then he quotes from Isaiah, he came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have our access in one spirit to the Father. Okay. Reconciliation of those who were far away from God. There's another Swiss theologian named Marcus Barth who has famously called Ephesians 2, what we're reading right now, the gospel of the broken wall. That's the reason for the name of our sermon today. There was a real wall in the temple in Jerusalem, another physical barrier besides circumcision that kept the Gentiles away from the presence of God. It separated the outer courts from the inner precincts, and there were signs, two of those signs have survived, that said something to the effect that if you, Gentile, if you walk past this point, you will be responsible for your own death. Right? You don't get to go in God's presence. But in Christ, language that is super important to Paul, I say that it's the center of his theology. He says the words in Christ 200 times in his letters. In Christ, everything has changed. The enmity between the Jew and Gentile has been removed Paul's language of unity and fullness 
is all about the church that was formed through the sacrifice of Jesus. Jews and Greeks are one in Christ. They are reconciled to God and to each other to form the new people of God. And so he goes on to say, so you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and you belong to God's household having been built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, and our Messiah Jesus is the cornerstone, in whom the whole building is fit together and growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you Gentiles also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. Does that mean that the Jews and Gentile Christians became best buddies and they all got along? If you think so, you haven't read your Bible because you know that Paul stood up in Antioch and rebuked Peter and Barnabas for refusing to eat at the same table with the Gentile Christians, their brothers in the Lord. You know about the debates in Jerusalem about whether the Gentiles have to be circumcised or not. This was not friends forever. There was anger. There was distress. There was misunderstanding for years. Now, it's not hard to recognize who our enemies are these days. We all publish our alignments on social media. We friend and unfriend people based on who they voted for, or whether they agree with our stance on the environment or welfare or immigration. I have a huge spectrum of friends on, among my 2,500 friends. I've got, I've got Ray, who is a PhD. He's a Chinese-American who teaches German. And how about that? And he is a Democrat, as democratically Democrat as you can go. And I've got James, who is a PhD in textual criticism and pastors a Baptist church and teaches at a seminary. And he is Republican, as Republican you can go. Well, you might think enemy is too strong a term for people that we disagree with. We tend to think of enemy in military terms, right? Like the enemy is someone you go out to physically attack. But in actual fact, there are a lot of people that we treat like enemies. We shut them out. We put them down. We verbally attack them. We'd love to do that online now. We experience others doing that to us. We feel, we feel especially outraged when fellow Christians completely disagree with us. Like, aren't we supposed to all love each other? And you think right now about the folks in your life with whom you avoid spending time, about whom you tell tales, against whom you have campaigned, whether to keep them out of your friendship circle or off of a committee at work. Or maybe you're the person who has been picked on or misunderstood or undermined by others, and you've got a festering wound. How many times have you heard somebody, even non-Christians will do this, say, oh, look at all those denominations. Why can't Christians get along? Or, or despairing about disunity in the church. Didn't Jesus say you will know each other by our love? Sometimes the differences between believers come out looking like hate. But you know, Jesus didn't ask if you were pro-life before he died for you. He didn't ask if you were anti-illegal immigration before he died for you. When he chose the 12 apostles, 
He didn't pick a group of people who all came from the same theological background or political background. He didn't block out awkward guys and biased folks from his closest followers. They followed him just like people follow us today, right? Here we had Matthew, a tax collector who's colluding with the Romans in the same little Bible study as Simon, who is a zealot who wants to kill Romans. How did those Bible studies go? <laughs> James and John go, sneak up to Jesus secretly and say, okay, could we sit at your right and left hand when you become the, the Messiah of Israel? You know, just let us be the most special ones, blocking out the others, right? Now, my goal is not that we're going to have a warm and fuzzy group hug and all reconcile with each other today. Uh, we, we have people we differ with, honestly differ with. We have people who have hurt us or people whose lifestyles we find offensive or sinful. And we do need to work towards reconciliation in the church. I am all for that. We need to confess sin and ask forgiveness almost daily. I've got two nieces living in my house right now. I'm learning how to say I'm sorry again because I've been living by myself for so long I didn't have to. But that confession and reconciliation is not my goal today. Here's a confession, though. Uh, I, don't, I don't tend to be a fan of Beth Moore. Uh, she's a, a female preacher. The reason is that they call her a Bible teacher. She's not a Bible teacher. She's... She's an inspirational speaker, and she does do a good job at that. But just yesterday, while I was writing this sermon, I found a really good quote from her. And this is what we're talking about today. She says, I prize unity. I esteem its profound importance to Christ for his body. But I prize truth above unity. This is kind of a shocking, surprising thing, right? If your idea of unity is me agreeing with you where I don't or where I utterly can't, we can love one another deeply and we can treat one another with dignity. But unity might have to wait. My goal today is to remind us all that we don't get to decide who belongs to the family of God. We don't get to dictate who Jesus, to Jesus who he should save or when somebody has qualified for salvation. I'll have my four folks come up now. Both groups, both groups, the Jews and the Gentiles, are under the power of sin, and they equally need God's grace. All humanity is included in Adam's sin and in Jesus' righteousness. I'd like you to think about this mystery that God has destined us for membership in his family, even when we are so different and divided, even when we can't speak to each other without getting upset. We still belong together. Why does everything have to be about race with you? Maybe the reason people are so quiet around you is because you're so sensitive, they choose not to speak up instead. I said, never mind. You wouldn't understand. Why? Because I'm white? Exactly. You keep telling me because I'm white, I don't understand you. How can we ever start if all you black people won't even talk to us? 
Even if we explain something 20 times over, you still wouldn't understand. White people are literally incapable of seeing things from our perspective. How would you know? You don't even try. You don't mix in here and then complain about not feeling community on campus. Oh, like we chose to be excluded? You're not excluded by us. You choose to sit with only black people. Really? Like you all don't do the same? You don't hear that all the white people sit together. Why is it a big deal when we do it? Are we supposed to have an honorary black person to make it known that we accept black people at our tables? There's not many, very many of you. There's always bound to be a table of white people. That doesn't mean that we don't want people, black people at our tables. There's very few of us. You said it yourself. Do you know how hard it is to come into the school and feel self-conscious? Do you know how hard it is to come into a room and automatically know I am the minority and I do not belong, clearly? It's not like we don't want you to sit with us. We didn't forbid you to come to our tables either. You don't exactly make it easy to enter into the conversation. Because there's no point in having a conversation with people like you. People like me? Yeah. The moment I talk about prejudice and racism, your guard is already up. We aren't in those racism days anymore. Why? Because it's not blatant, huh? We don't have separated bathrooms anymore, so you think 400 plus years of oppression and systems just disappear? You think it's going to be gone with an apology? You say things like white privilege and assume that I get all the advantages over you. I don't even believe in white privilege. I think you're just milking the past to get benefits you don't deserve now. This is why I can't pursue the conversation any further. You've already formed your opinion. You're not listening to me anymore. I am here at the table of the Lord. I am not alone. I am here with my enemy. Hallelujah. Amen. Why are you conservatives more focused on building barriers than creating bridges? We don't need a racist wall. It's not a racist wall. We're protecting our country and creating more jobs for Americans. We want to support the economy and make and make and support our most vulnerable citizens. We both know Republican policies are more concerned with making money than protecting the poor. Your tax cuts will only benefit corporations and the wealthy. When will you open your eyes? My eyes are open. But you want to allow everyone and anyone to our country and your perspective on taxes only pushes us farther into debt. You should focus on protecting our families and job growth. Job growth, even if it can happen through your means, won't benefit women and minorities. They still fight for equal pay. On top of that, women specifically are being told they can't make decisions for their own bodies. Why can't you see my perspective? Oh, sweet baby Jesus. I believe that life is sacred. I don't understand why you don't understand that. I want you to understand my political beliefs are informed by my faith. So are mine but you'd rather act like what's best for you is best for everyone. Don't you act the same exact way? You don't want to see my perspective any more than I've understood yours. I am here at the table of the Lord. I am not alone. I am here with my enemy. Hallelujah, amen. Let's all stand up. Jesus has opened his arms wide and welcomed people into his family who we would not have chosen and with whom we might never agree. In fact, we may now spend the rest of our lives in complete disagreement, but let's express the truth that we still all belong in the same family. So let's say this together. I am here at the table of the Lord. I am not alone. 
I am here with my enemy. Hallelujah. Amen. One more time with we. We are here at the table of the Lord. We are not alone. We are here with our enemies. Hallelujah. Amen.